Amen. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever eaten a piece of Mark's chicken. Yeah. You know he does run the most delicious ministry of ABC Church, right? So good. I am so grateful to get to serve alongside of guys like Mark and the other elders on our team. We have a team of godly men here who are striving hard after Jesus and serving you sacrificially, and we are all the beneficiaries of that. So my name is Gerald. If we haven't met, um, it's so good to be with you again this morning, church, and I want to just say good morning to our online community. We're so glad that you're tuning in, and someday we pray that you'll come on back and experience what's going on in the room here because we just had a beautiful time of worship together, didn't we? So, so good. Well, today, folks, we're going to talk about work, so I'm going to roll up my sleeves, and I want you to look at the sermon title. The title is, What Motivates Your Work? That's what we're going to wrestle with today, what motivates your work. I remember back when I was in college, I worked at a gas station. So I dove in and I put on my uniform, it was a, a standard oil back in the day, gas station, and I pumped gas for little old ladies back when we used to have a full service gas island, right? And people would pay a little bit more per gallon in order to have somebody else fill their tank. I changed oil on cars, uh, I fixed tires, and I drove tow truck and I got paid the whopping wage of $3.25 an hour. Yeah, gas was a little bit under a dollar. I'm old. Um, yeah, and here's the catch. When I was in school, I got a whole term of classes, somewhere between 12 and 21 units, for $326. Things have changed. But I worked my way through college, um, and sadly, it wasn't because I needed to. My parents had been wise. They had saved up a fund that could cover my tuition and my room and my board. And yet, I was motivated to get that work, that job at the gas station because my Thunderbird looked good, but it was slow. And I needed speed parts. So I worked 20, 30 hours a week in order to save up my money to rebuild the engine, uh, rebuild the transmission with a shift kit so that it chirped the tires when it shifted from first to second. And Yes, I had some pretty messed up motivations for working back in the day. Since then, I've done a variety of things with a variety of motivations, and perhaps you have too. So today, as we continue to preach our way through Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we come to a few verses in which the preacher, or Kohelet, is frustrated by what he sees. Remember, he's a collector, he's looking around at life, and he's gathering things that he sees, and he's writing about it for our education. And today he sees three sinful motivations for work. He sees that we're motivated by envy, he sees that we're motivated by greed, and he sees that we're motivated by a love of control. I don't know if any of those are ringing true to you right now, but I just ask you to prayerfully be searching your heart and searching your mind today as we preach our way through this. And I think it's really helpful for us to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and remember that God created all that is, including scooping up some dust of the earth and breathing into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And then he, caused, he recognized it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, so he caused a deep sleep to come on Adam. And he pulled out a rib and he fashioned from that rib the first woman. Her name is Eve. And the two of them God placed in the garden, and he gave them a job description to work it and to keep it. Work 
is not a consequence of the fall. It is part of God's good design for his creation. Now, the entrance of sin into the world in Genesis 3 certainly has complicated all of our lives, every aspect of our lives, and perhaps uniquely so our motivations for work. We either tend to avoid work like the plague because we hate it, or we find our identity in work and we obsess over it. I don't know if you're in either one of those ditches today, but those are the two extremes that we can fall into. So as you join me in prayer, let's turn to Ecclesiastes 4 and ask the Lord to search our heart and teach us some things about ourselves. Lord, good morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your good design for your creation. That includes good, meaningful work. And Lord, each one of us knows what it's like to, to work, to work for something, for a variety of motivations. And I pray that you would tune our ears to your voice. I pray that you would send forth your spirit to fill this room and to fill each one of us now so that the things you need us to hear through Ecclesiastes chapter 4 are the very things that land on our hearts through our minds. So have your way in our midst as we read and teach your word. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 4, we'll begin reading at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, and there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So right here in verse 4, in answer to the question, what motivates your work, Kohelet recognizes envy is a sinful motivation that motivates us. It, it prompts us to sweat, to work hard, and it prompts us to even gain new skills in order to keep up with the Joneses, in order to keep up out of envy with our neighbor. And when that's our motivation, when envy is our motivation, we end up building ourselves up until we finally feel like we have reached the standard of that, that guy. 
See, the focus is on that person, and we tend to make an idol out of that person. That's how we talk about it here in our culture, right? And we, we determine in our heart that I will not ever be enough until I am like that guy or I have what that guy has. Back when I was a young adult, one of my buddies bought a new water ski because that's what we did on weekends up in North Dakota in the summer. And I, I was jealous of that water ski. I wanted one. So I began to scheme. You know, if I, if I work a little overtime or if I perhaps gained some new skills and parlayed that into a side business, maybe I could get a new water ski too. Oh, and if I worked hard enough, I could get a boat. Yeah. My father-in-law had a sign in his garage that says, the two happiest days of a boatsman, the day he buys it and the day he sells it. <laughs> Those of you who own a boat know exactly what I'm talking about. Keeping that thing running can be difficult. It's like striving after the wind is what Kohelet would say. And he says it's a vanishing vapor. It is literally like trying to strive after the wind if we are focusing our efforts and, and if envy is our motivation to work. And you'll never end up finding it. And even if, even if you do manage to work and you do manage to get that boat and you do manage somehow over the years to keep it running, at the end of your days, you're going to end up giving it to somebody else who hasn't worked for it anyway, <laughs> right? It's vanity. And so we can tend to say, yeah, I agree with you, preacher. I agree with you that envy is a sinful thing, and I need to avoid that in my motivation to work. And sometimes we go to the other ditch, like the pendulum swings all the way over here, and we go, you know what? I won't be motivated by envy if I just stop working, if I just avoid it altogether. And he says, no, because the one who does that, he says, ends up consuming his own flesh. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You say, well, that's a rather cryptic sort of sentence. Like, what does he mean? Well, in wisdom literature, the folding of the hands is a word picture to talk about laziness. Listen to Proverbs 6, verses 10 and 11. It says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an unarmed man. So if you try to avoid the sinful motivation of envy in your toil by not working, he says, you're just going to end up back where you started because your poverty is going to tackle you like an armed man and want will overcome you. And there you are right back at square one, envious because other people have things and you don't. But he does give us a word of correction. In verse 6, he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. So we're not to allow envy to cause us to grab two hands full of toil, full of work. We won't be able to keep it. He says it sprouts wings and flies away. Listen to Proverbs 23, 4, and 5. He says, don't toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings and it flies like an eagle toward heaven. <laughs> wealth is vanity. Anybody who had acquired any level of wealth prior to 2008 and lived through the depression of, or the recession of 2008, you know what I'm talking about. There were some serious dollars that just sprouted wings and flew away. So he says, don't have two hands full of toil. He says, it's better to have a handful of quietness. 
And again, we turn to the Proverbs to help us understand this idea of quietness. He says, you just end up leaving whatever you strive for to somebody who comes after you. So it's better to have one handful of quietness. A handful of quietness is something that represents faithful work-life balance, which has apparently been something that people have been wrestling with for probably since the fall. Certainly, Paul had to address it in his second letter to the Thessalonian church, and he says this in, in verses 10 through 12. He says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So two hands full of toil, striving to get wealth because of envy for our neighbor, not good. Two hands full folded in idleness, not good. He says it's better to have one handful of quietness as you have the other hand full of work. And Paul, it's serious enough for Paul to say, no work, no eat. People were trying to recognize the, the time is short, so why should I work? And the answer is because work is good. It honors the Lord Jesus Christ. But we tend to work for the wrong reasons. We tend to work by envy, right? And envy, the focus is on the neighbor. It's like covetousness, that thing in, in the Ten Commandments that we're not supposed to do. It says, you have what I want, and I won't be satisfied until I get it. That's one motivation that he speaks to. The second is greed. And the focus on greed is on the self. And the cry of the heart for the one who's motivated by greed is mine. It's all mine. Look at verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, and there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So greed also can be a sinful motivation for our work where we are striving after something for ourselves. And according to the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, we're never satisfied and we never ask the question, for whom am I toiling? Because the answer to that question is, for me. I get something out of working that is near and dear to my identity, and I do what I do for me, never even giving a thought to anybody else in the equation. And the unfortunate side effect, as I understand what Kohelet is teaching us here in Ecclesiastes 4, is that we end up working so hard that we end up being alone. We end up alone because the, poor, the core problem here is idolatry of self. We recognize that we must fuel whatever makes us feel alive in ourselves. And this is the essence of all sin. Sin, the affections of the heart, turn inward on the self. See, we're designed by God to love Him supremely and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love is an outward-facing gaze. But because of sin, the affections of the heart turn inward on the self, and we love ourselves above everything else. And the words that he uses here in Ecclesiastes 4 to describe this guy, there's no end to all his toil. 
His eyes are never satisfied with riches, and he never asks the question, for whom am I toiling? That sounds like workaholism to me. And I would know because I am one. My wife would tell you that I still wrestle with workaholism today, but she would also tell you that by God's grace, I'm better at striving against it today than I once was. There was a season in my life when I was farming and ranching where all I could think about was, was working. I didn't even think about my wife and kids. I mean, if you asked me, I would tell you that I was doing it for my wife and kids, but the way I lived and the way I invested my life wasn't even giving a thought to them. It was about feeding this insatiable hunger in me to be an excellent farmer and an excellent rancher because there was something in my heart wrapped up in that as an identity, which is unhealthy. And I almost lost my wife and my kids as a result of that. I was never satisfied, and I never stopped to ask who I was working for. And there was a season when she was ready to leave me. Here's a little picture of what it looked like. When my oldest son, Jesse, was in, in kindergarten, and he, he, he drew the family portrait with a crayon, he comes home to show it to me, and I wasn't even in it. And I asked him, I said, Jess, where's Daddy? He says, you're out working, Dad. That was when my eyes were opened to the fact that I was a workaholic. And apparently, according to the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, I was motivated by greed. But by God's grace, he intervened in my life. And two years later, when my daughter drew that portrait as a kindergartner, she drew daddy in rather than out. God can get into your heart, into your mind. He can change your motivations. And he can remove greed. He can remove workaholism as a motivation for you to work. And my question for you is, does greed tempt you in the way that it continues to tempt me? Greed is a sinful motivation for work, which is precisely why Kohelet gives us this familiar clear word in verses 9 through 12 as an antidote against that. If you're going to work so hard, if you're a workaholic, you're going to end up alone. And he says it's better, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who's alone when he falls, has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So as we work our way through life, as we come up against and trip over the obstacles of life, he's saying two are better than one because that other person can help you up. Isolation. You're going to have to stay down or try to figure out how to get yourself up, right? Two are better than one when we're shivering in the cold of the elements of nature. You can't stay warm alone, but if there's two of you, you can stay warm. And if you're facing the assault of an enemy, you're probably going to fall prey to that enemy's will if you're alone. But if there's two of you, you can probably stand against that evil advance. And so he tells us to, to approach our work life in such a way that doesn't cause us to be isolated, that doesn't cause us to be alone. And, and we talk about this here now in the church as work-life balance, right? Anybody ever heard of wrestling through what it feels like to have a, a faithful work-life balance? And we need to do that. We need to sit back and take an inventory and ask ourselves, why am I working? What is motivating my work? For whom am I working? Am I working to provide for my family? 
Am I working to provide for a neighbor, a relative? Or am I just feeding my own selfish desire? We need to ask, does the amount of time and the effort that I invest into my work reflect my true priorities in life? We need to ask ourselves these sobering questions. And when we do that, and if we're honest with ourselves, we find, yep, I've been, I've been guilty of being motivated by envy. I've been guilty of being motivated by greed. And Kohelet goes on and addresses one more sinful motivation that you might identify with too, and that's our love for control. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. He says, Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and striving after wind. So here we see somebody. It's a rags-to-riches story, right? It's, it's a youth who was born poor. The text even says he was in prison. And he finds himself over a series of years as king in the kingdom. And the commentary of the Kohelet is that there's no end to the people that he has authority over. There's no end of the people that he led. And when we get the sense that he's there because he loves the idea of being in control. Probably because when he was young and when he was poor, he felt like much of his life was out of control. So in response to that, he learned how to take control. And he became intoxicated by it. And he made sure that everybody fell in line. Did you read that in verse 16? There's no end to all the people, all whom he led. And apparently the end of this, when we are motivated by control, is we end up being resented. The text says that they won't rejoice in him. So he's leading in a way where the, the idea of being in control is more precious to him than the people he's leading. And I don't know if you've noticed, but people don't love being controlled. How many of you just love the idea of being controlled, having somebody exercise their will for you? No, we don't love that. People love rather being valued, seen, heard, listened to. And the word of correction here by the Kohelet is, it's better for a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to take advice. Don't forget how to take advice. Don't become so intoxicated with the level of control that you have that you think you have nothing to learn. That is the way of the fool. I had the privilege of listening to Dane Ortland preach at a CCEF conference. That means Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. And that was a... a a multi-day conference where we looked at the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and recognized its value in the biblical counseling world or in the discipleship world. Dane Ortland defined a fool and a wise person out of the book of Proverbs, and he says it this way. It's so clear. He says, a fool is an empty cup who thinks he's full, and a wise person is an empty cup who knows he's empty. Let me say that again. A fool is an empty cup who thinks he's full. He has nothing to learn. 
He has no need for advice. He won't surround himself with others and consider their input. He knows it all. And he spends all of his time speaking forth his opinion. He's one who speaks almost all the time and listens almost never. Contrasting to that, the wise person is one who is an empty cup, who knows he's empty, and because he knows he's empty, he surrounds himself with people. He's hungry for their advice, he's eager for input, and he's collaborative in the way that he loves and leads. Is having authority and being in control one of your motivations in what you do? Kohelet says that this is vanity. It's like striving after wind. It's a passing vapor. It's a waste of energy. Being motivated by control is foolish, and it's not Christ-like. It's not godly. Remember, Jesus, he's the one who says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's the one who's in control. He has the power. He has the authority. And he's also the one who said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, he's the one who literally and legitimately has all control, and he stewards that control in sacrificial service, laying down his life for the good of the church. And he's our model. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. Good leadership, godly leadership, is servant leadership. That's who Jesus is, and we are to be, as Christians, little Christs. We imitate him. And yes, you are right when you think, that's going to cost me something. Absolutely, it will cost you something. And we step back and we go, well, what on earth is going to motivate me to be willing to lead and love in that way if it's going to cost me that much? And the answer is gratitude. We look at what Paul has to say to the Colossian church, and we are reminded that gratitude is our proper motivation for work. He says in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Gratitude is to be our motivation. We need to step back and remember that we booted up in this life, careening our way toward hell. And apart from the intervention of God and the gracious, merciful forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ, we're bound for hell. We're on that wide path that leads to destruction. But by God's grace, he intervened and he made us alive together with Christ through, by grace through faith. And now our eternal destination has been forever changed. And we are grateful for that. That answers the question, why? Why should I be willing to work in this way at great personal cost? It's because I'm, gra I'm grateful that God has spared my life. And he goes on in verse 23 and he says, Whatever you do, in work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Literally work from the soul. Out of the soul, a soul that's been gripped by grace, a soul that has been redeemed by Jesus Christ and is gripped by his grace, and that is to be the motivation for our work. And he says, whatever you do. So what you do, the answer to that is up for you to choose, as long as it's honoring to God and it doesn't 
stand contrary to anything that he prohibits, right? So as long as it's good, honest work, feel the freedom to dive in. Going, thinking all the way back to Adam and Eve, they were to work and keep the garden. They, they were to till the soil and grow vegetables. They were to watch over the livestock and, and shepherd the sheep. Around here in North County, we might say, go ahead, tend the vine and make the wine. It's okay. It's, it's good, honorable work. Get involved in maintenance engineering or custodial work. Um, take care of buildings. Do facilities management. You're free to involve yourself in food service and the hospitality environment. You're free to educate children or adults as a teacher. Dive in and make a difference in somebody's life. You're free to design, fabricate, and build stuff for society. We're free to serve in the healthcare industry. We're free to design and maintain apps and software. We're free to make music and other forms of art, entertaining people. We're free to start and run that business. And, and if you're an entrepreneur, maybe you spin it up and get it going and sell it off, or maybe you, stay, you retain ownership of it and you lead that business, you run it. You're free to do that. You're free to answer the call into vocational ministry, and the list goes on and on and on. Whatever you do, you're free to choose it. But whatever we do, we're to do heartily from a soul that's been gripped by grace fueled by gratitude. He says, you're to do it in the name of the Lord. And we step back and we ask, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean that I'm to, to do what I do in the name of the Lord? I think it means at least three things. It means we do it as his representatives. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul calls us ambassadors. Right? So we do it as his representatives who have his authority. We do it as a means of displaying his character. As Christians, literally little Christs, we are to display the character of Christ in all that we are and all that we do. In, in short, we do it like Jesus did it. And we wonder, how did he do it? And we turn to passages like John chapter 5, and we remember that Jesus said that he can do nothing of his own accord... This is 519. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus recognized in humility, I can't do anything on my own. I need to look around and see where my Father is at work and join him there and do likewise. I'm dependent on the Father, and he stewarded his dependence on the Father through times of prayer. You always hear the gospel writers write about Jesus slipping away up the mountain to invest time in prayer. He, he stayed in close fellowship with his Father. So he looked around, he recognized where his Father was at work, and he joined him, and he did likewise. And he's our model for that. What was he doing? We see Jesus doing things like being a carpenter. When you read through the Gospel of Mark and he starts preaching, people take, in his, in his hometown, people take offense at him because they say, don't we know him as the carpenter? <laughs> right? So he was building things with his hands at some season in his life. We also know that Jesus was building his church, right? In Matthew we read, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus is building stuff with his hands, he's building his church, and he's making disciples who make disciples. 
That's what Jesus is doing. And we're reminded again of Paul's words out of Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. There is a reward coming for the service that we do here on this earth. Paul talks about it using the language of inheritance. We may or may not see the benefit of our work here on this side of glory on this earth, but in heaven there is a reward that awaits every one of us based on the work that we do. There's an eternal place in the kingdom of God under the benevolent rule of Jesus that's more beautiful, more satisfying, more marvelous than we can ever imagine. And the sweetness about it is we'll be able to work with pure and proper motivations without the gravitational pull of sin holding us back. That's part of what it means to receive that inheritance. Speaking of this, there's a man named Joseph Hall. He was a, a bishop in the early 17th century. And I'm reading a book here these days called The Good Life in the Last Days. It says, uh, making choices when time is short. It, it takes the, the difficult sayings of Jesus about how we're to live, the difficult sayings of Paul about how we're to live in light of the time being short, and it unpacks it for us. And Bishop Hall says this about the way we serve. He says, the homeliest service that we do in an honest calling, though it be but to plow or dig, if done in obedience and conscience of God's commandment, it's crowned with an ample reward, whereas the best works of their kind, preaching, praying, offering evangelical sacrifices, if without respect to God's injunction and glory are loaded with curses, God loveth adverbs and he cares not how good, but how well. So it's not about how good the work that we're doing is, the thing itself. It's not like preaching is more gooder than digging a ditch or plowing a field. He says it's not about that. It's how well we do it. It get back to our motivations. Why are we doing it? And here, as we continue to search our hearts and search our minds, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what we're motivated to work. We're reminded by what the author of Ecclesiastes tells us is better. He says if you're motivated by envy, it's better to have a handful of quietness. If we're motivated by greed, two are better than one. And if we're motivated by control and love, he says it's better to be poor and wise and to remember how to give advice, or how to take advice, rather. And the word that he uses here to say things are better is the Hebrew word tov. And that's the same word God uses in Genesis 1 and self-assessment of his good creation. He said, and the Lord said, let there be light, and it was so, and the God God saw the light, and he saw that it was tov. It was good. So could it be that what Kohelet says here is better is actually referring back to what God originally intended in his creation prior to the fall? Could that be? It's better. It's better to have one hand full of quietness. It's better to have two together. 
It's better to never forget how to take advice. So please join me in prayer, and and let's continue to search our hearts. Father, here we are, a group of people who know exactly what it looks like to be motivated by a number of things in our work. And we ask that you would tune our ears so that we can recognize exactly what we're currently being motivated by. Lord, to the degree that we have been motivated by envy, forgive us and help us to find work-life balance. To the degree we've been motivated by greed, Lord, forgive us and help us to to partner with others, recognizing that two are better than one. Lord, to the degree that we're motivated motivated by just loving the idea of being in control and, and being over other people, forgive us and teach us yet again how to take advice. Show us what it looks like to be wise. So, Lord, you know altogether what each one of us needs to hear, and I just pray that you would speak forth a word of correction, a word of encouragement, whatever each man, woman, and child needs to hear about our motivation for work. Lord, speak it now and give us the ability to sing truths about who you are together in unison, in harmony, with joy from hearts gripped and motivated by gratitude. You are a good and a benevolent God. You have not withheld any good thing from us. You're the giver of every good and perfect gift. That includes life and salvation through faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, we give you our thanks and we give you our praise. We offer you ourselves now in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.